At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my, and with my descendants or with my prosperity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing, and you did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? And he said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there were both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This is the word of the Lord. So last week in the story of Abraham, Aaron preached on the birth of Isaac. Isaac has finally been born to Abraham and Sarah. As we've seen this fall, if you haven't been with us, then you should know that the entire story of Abraham and his life in many ways has been building up to that moment at the beginning of Genesis chapter 21. And we saw that Abraham made a great feast. He had a big party for Isaac and to celebrate God's goodness to him. And today, We continue forward in Abraham's life and read about another episode with Abraham and this man, this king named Abimelech. We've seen Abimelech before. We encountered him actually a couple of weeks ago in Genesis chapter 20. And so you'll notice that two stories about Abraham and Abimelech bracket the story of Isaac's birth. They bookend that major story in Abraham's life. And the story in Genesis 20 before Isaac is born is about a threat to God's promise to Abraham to give him a child. Remember, Abimelech had taken Sarah into his household because Abraham had lied about his relationship with her. And whether or not Abraham was going to be the legitimate father of Isaac was called into question. So there was a threat to the promise of a child. We saw that that was resolved, but now in Genesis 21, at the end of the chapter, we see Abimelech come up again, and there is now a threat to God's promise to give Abraham a land, because we read here that these two men and their associates and their parties are fighting about water rights, about well rights in the land in which both of them are living. And so the question is, will Abraham be able to dwell in the promised land or not? Is God going to continue to be faithful to his chosen servant, to this man that he has called to bless the nations, or is he not going to be faithful? So with that stage-setting information, I want us to focus in this morning on this main idea. The main thing we see here is Abraham growing up. We see this morning Abraham maturing We see him growing up spiritually. We see him gaining what I'm going to refer to a number of times this morning as a holy confidence. You know, not an abrasive, arrogant, annoying confidence and arrogance, and not a 
weak passivity, but a good, solid, holy, godly, mature confidence because he trusts that God is with him. Now, as you know, if you've been with us, this has been a struggle, right, for Abraham and for Sarah ever since we've been following his life. He's had ups and he's had downs, like all of us do in our lives as well. And in fact, the last time Abraham dealt with Abimelech, it was a significant down moment for him, if you'll remember that. And yet in this story today, he shows himself to be spiritually growing up. And so we see, I hope, I hope that we will see that the same thing can happen in our lives when our trust in God begins to grow and flourish, when our belief in the gospel begins to embed itself itself in our lives so that it, it takes a deep root, we begin to experience growth. We begin to experience change. Let me just sum it up like this. Here's the main idea that I hope through the Holy Spirit is communicated to you this morning. When we know that God is with us, we can live with a holy confidence. When we know that God is with us, we can live with a holy confidence. So in a sense, I want to break that sentence into two parts, and those will be the two points of the sermon today. First, Abimelech knows that God is with Abraham. That's point one. And point two is that Abraham has a holy confidence with Abimelech. So that's the outline of where we're going to head just for the next couple of minutes together. So let's look at this story and see what God has for us today. So first... We see, especially in these first few verses of the text, verses 22 through 24, that Abimelech knows God is with Abraham. So the story begins when Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, come to Abraham. Now think about that. That could be a moment of intimidation, right? You've got the king of the realm, the king of this area, this tribal region, and his top general coming to meet with you. And you must be wondering, what does he want? What's going on here? And Instead, we read that Abimelech comes to tell Abraham, rather than to try and intimidate him, Abimelech says to Abraham, verse 22, God is with you. God is with you in all that you do. Now, that's really important. This foreign king who is outside of the promises of God, who is not a part of the family to which God has chosen to reveal himself to this point in the story of the Bible. He doesn't know Yahweh, the true God. Yet, he is able to see and clearly acknowledge that there is divine blessing at work in and behind Abraham's life. Really, really significant. The mark of God's blessing upon Abraham is clear to this man Abimelech. Interestingly, if you move forward in Genesis, Abimelech, this same guy, later says this about Abraham's son, Isaac. In Genesis 26, he says, God is with you, Isaac. And in Genesis 30, it's noted about Abraham's grandson, Jacob. God is with you. And in Genesis 39, it's noted of Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. God is with you. God's covenant faithfulness to the family of Abraham is clear to the world as these men sought to live in the knowledge that God is with them. Okay? And so because... Abimelech sees that God is so evidently going to bless Abraham no matter what. They want to assure that there will be peace between Abraham's family and Abimelech's family and Abimelech's kingdom. And so Abimelech has not come to fight or to argue. He hasn't come to intimidate. He's come to to sue for peace, as it were, to make a covenant, a treaty with Abraham that they will be faithful to one another, that they will walk with one another, that they will not fight each other. 
Abimelech, you see, knows that Abraham is going to flourish. And so he wants to be on Abraham's team. If you follow professional sports, especially the NBA, National Basketball Association, you might know that this past offseason there were some major moves that took place. Kevin Durant left the Oklahoma City Thunder, who he had been with for eight years and had a lot of success with. They haven't won a championship, but they've been really close a couple of times. He left the Thunder to join the Golden State Warriors, who were already probably the most loaded team with talent in basketball. So Durant left the Warriors, because, or excuse me, left the Thunder because he knew the Warriors were probably going to do really, really well. Now, for some sports fans, that's a weak move. You know, that's kind of my tendency. So I think, what are you doing, man? You're not being loyal to the guys that you came up with. You go and chase a championship. But the bottom line is, Durant knew that the Warriors were going to be good, right? He knew they were going to flourish. He knows that his career is probably going to have more championships when it's over if he's with the Warriors than if he stays with the Thunder. And so he wants to join their team. You know, whether or not we like Durant doing that, we can probably understand the appeal of being on the side that is going to flourish, that is going to do well. That's sort of how Abimelech feels towards Abraham. He knows Abraham is going to flourish. He knows his family is going to thrive. He sees God's blessing, and so he wants to covenant with him. So, interestingly enough, Abimelech sees God's blessing on Abraham despite also seeing some of the weaknesses and sinful tendencies in Abraham's life. Remember the last time these two guys interacted with one another? It was just a few weeks ago in Genesis 20, verses 10 through 13. Abraham did not come off well there. Yet God was still with Abraham, protecting him. And we saw there that Abraham had prayed for Abimelech, and this disease that had afflicted Abimelech left him, and his household was able again to have children. We saw that at the end of chapter 20. So Abimelech sees that God blesses and cares for Abraham in spite of Abraham's regular shortcomings and failures. It's like Abimelech is thinking, okay, if God is going to bless this guy, right, who does this sort of thing, then that's the sort of guy I probably need to be around. That's the sort of guy I want to have a relationship that's peaceful with. So Abimelech saw that God was blessing Abraham, and he saw that in part through seeing Abraham's faith and trust in God, even though he had also seen Abraham's weaker moments. Let me ask this. I wonder wonder if the world sees God's blessing in our lives through our faith, the way Abimelech saw God's blessing upon Abraham, through Abraham's faith. You know, in Genesis 12, we read that Abraham was to be a a blessing to the world, to people like Abimelech, who were not part of God's chosen family in the Old Testament. And we know from later parts of Scripture that each of us who claim to follow Jesus, all disciples of Jesus, are also called to be a blessing to the world. In Jesus' famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he says that his followers are the light of the world, right? And the salt of the earth. That is, we are to have a preservative, illuminating influence, a positive impact in the world because we follow Jesus, because we're recipients of God's grace. And the way we bless the world as salt and light is by trusting in God is by our increasing faith in God. Our blessing the world increases as our trust in God increases. And so then, 
If we can get that, the question for us becomes, are we trusting God more and more? We see Abraham maturing and growing up here. And so the question is important for us to ask ourselves, honestly, are we maturing? Do we believe that God is with us? Is our trust in his continued faithfulness, even in the midst of downturns in our lives, something that we can measure and see growing and thriving in our own spiritual lives? Does that show up in your day-to-day? Do your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your coworkers, do they see any difference in your life because you believe that God is with you? And how can you know if you have that kind of trust in God? How can you diagnose yourself as to whether or not your trust in God is increasing and therefore your living as a blessing is increasing? Typically, the acid test, the way to know whether or not your trust in God is increasing is by examining how you react either when you face suffering or when you face prosperity. It's generally through one of those two things that you can begin to determine whether your own heart is maturing as far as your faith and trust in God's goodness to you goes. Let's think about that for just a second. First, the way you handle suffering is an important marker of whether or not your trust in God is growing. Jonathan Haidt is a journalist and a uh, author who wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. It's a very interesting book. And it's, uh, he's not a believer, he's not a Christian, but it has a lot of really good uh, insights about um, how people handle and respond to suffering and to happiness. And one thing he says is that the way people handle suffering will make you either a much better person or a much worse person. <laughs> um, at one point he writes this. He writes that, Quote, those who work harder to manage their pain than to confront and learn from their suffering can become bitter and hopeless, but active coping and reappraisal can lead to real gains as it combines doing the hard inner work of learning and growing with seeking to change the painful external circumstances. I think that is echoing something that is profoundly true. The one who trusts God is with him And the one whose trust that God is with him is increasing can face suffering, can face pain, and not be utterly crushed by it. Now, I don't mean that he or she is not sad or hurting or wounded. But but in the midst of trials and pain, there is, for the person whose trust in God is growing, there is an abiding sense of God's presence with them. And I'll tell you what, that is something that people notice. I'm sure some of you have experienced that either in your own life or among others, your friends or family whom you have seen suffer well. That's when people say God is with that person, surely, right? So if you're suffering, perhaps a question to ask yourself is, are you facing it in a way that reflects trust in God? The way you handle suffering shows whether or not your trust in God is increasing. And the same goes with the way you handle prosperity. Um, another way people notice that you have trust in God is the way you handle life when things are going well, right? When things are going well, most of our tendencies is to loosen our grip on God. Jerry Bridges writes, in adversity, we tend to doubt God's fatherly care, but in prosperity, we tend to forget it. In prosperity, we tend to forget it. You know, if you could graph 
I don't know what kind of graph this would be. A line graph? I don't know. I was terrible at math. It, it, is it even math? I don't know. I don't do graphs. I like books. But if you could graph <laughs> the way our hearts react to prosperity, the level of our prosperity very regularly would have an inverse effect or a negative effect on the level of our trust in God. That's the norm, right? And we see that all over the Bible. I think of the rich young ruler that encounters Jesus in Luke chapter 19. Why is he, at the end of the day, the one that walks away from Jesus? It's because he doesn't really need anything. He doesn't really have any needs. His prosperity has blinded him so fully to the reality of his condition that he doesn't think God is necessary. And you know what? What people notice is when your prosperity is increasing, when things are going well in your life, what people notice is not when you turn away from God. That's normal. What people notice is when your sacrifice increases, when your generosity increases, when your gratitude increases. That is a sign of trust in God, that even when things are going well for you, even when you're experiencing prosperity, prosperity, your generosity, your faith, your commitment to loving your neighbor as yourself goes up. So maybe those are things you should be asking yourself this morning. Is there evidence in your life, seen in the way you're handling suffering, seen in the way you're handling prosperity, that your trust in God is growing? Like we see Abraham's trust in God growing here. We see Abraham growing We see him resting more and more in God's blessing. Abimelech notices that. So Abimelech wants to make peace. And so secondly, let's look at this idea that Abraham has holy confidence with Abimelech. So Abraham agrees to covenant with Abimelech. And this wasn't just like a handshake. This was a legally binding contract. Remember back in Genesis 15 when God made a covenant with Abraham and he put Abraham into that deep sleep and they cut up the animals and created a pathway and they walked, well, God walked through it. That's exactly what is happening here. This was an ancient Near Eastern way to make a binding contractual agreement with one another. And that's what's happening. That's why we read about these animals and the lambs and all of that stuff in the text. And uh, so they're pledging to support one another to walk with one another, to be allies and to be friends. But before they seal the deal, Abraham has to bring up an issue with Abimelech that's been a problem. Look with me, verse 25. When Abraham reproved, that is rebuked, that's a strong word, when he reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I don't know who's done this, you you didn't let me know, etc., etc. So, Abraham, before he seals the deal with this covenant relationship with Abimelech, addresses this issue of conflict that they've been having and that their people have been having. And the conflict centers around wells or water rights, basically. And and water rights, by the way, would have been a major deal in a desert sort of arid climate. So my dad lives out in West Texas, and his day job is working for this natural gas company, And basically what he does is he goes around and finds tracts of land out in West Texas where his company wants to drill for oil or for natural gas. And he finds out who owns the land, who has the mineral rights, and then he tries to create deals with those people. And often it can get pretty messy. Uh, It can get very tense because 
mineral rights in West Texas. It's one of the only reasons to live in West Texas, and I say that as a proud West Texan. You might be on top of a huge thing of natural gas or oil. It's, it's a big deal. It's significant. It's important who owns the rights to the minerals underneath the ground. And it's the same way in the ancient world, only with water. It was important who owned the rights to the well. And the respective clans of Abraham and Abimelech have been arguing and fighting over it. And so what does Abraham do? Abraham confronts Abimelech. Notice that he directly discusses the issue with the king. And I want you to see that this would have taken holy confidence. This would have taken guts, sort of spiritual fortitude on Abraham's part. Abimelech is a king. And he's got his head honcho right here next to him, his general. And, and the idea, I think, behind the, the passage is that, is that Abimelech is the superior force here. And yet Abraham is willing to be assertive. Abraham is bold. Abraham is confident. Abraham is wise. And I want you to get that this is a significant moment in his life. And then even after he's persuaded of Abimelech's good faith in this situation, Abraham is the one who takes the initiative in the actual covenant-making ceremony. We see that in verses 27 through 30. So here's the point. The idea is that because Abraham's trust in God is growing, he is not afraid of conflict here. That's the idea. Rather, he handles the conflict with holy confidence. He handles it with spiritual maturity. He's able to deal with potentially difficult situations and with potentially difficult people in a way that honors God because his trust in God is increasing. And so the question for us thousands of years later becomes this. Is your trust in God, is your faith, making a difference in the way that you deal with potentially difficult people. Or you know what? Forget the potentially with difficult people. Is it making a difference in the way you deal with difficult circumstances? Here's the thing. Not the, you, know, you don't need a PhD to figure this one out. All of us are going to face difficult people and difficult circumstances and maybe both at the same time throughout our lives. And so the story, this, the, the question this story is prompting is, can the gospel help us in that? Can we learn to trust in God's faithfulness and mercy to us so that it changes the way we deal with conflict? Can we develop a holy confidence in our lives? That's what's happening to Abraham here. So I want to think just for the final few minutes this morning about how we can grow in this way too. So let me just ask, how do you handle conflict? Fun question, right? That might make some of you uneasy even thinking about conflict. You know, people tend to handle conflict in two different ways. Either you're an attacker or a withdrawer. Okay? So think about that for your own life. And I I know spouses are probably elbowing each other right now. So if you're an attacker in conflicts, you tend to deal with anger and frustration by venting. Right? So you will argue and you'll ask questions like some sort of prosecutor. How do you know that? Prove that! Give me examples, right? And, and winning the argument for you is more important than loving the opponent. So you can turn the focus to the other person even if the argument begins with you. Do any of you have experience with that? That's the, the model of an attacker in conflict. If you face conflict 
as a withdrawer, rather, you deal with anger and frustration by suppressing it. You have opinions, but you keep them to yourself in order to keep peace, although eventually it's going to blow, right? Uh, You'd rather avoid a fight than win a fight. And here's what I want you to see. Neither of these two ways, the way of the attacker or the way of the withdrawer, is better than another. They both reflect a lack of trust in God. They both reflect a lack of belief in the gospel. And neither, by the way, is what Abraham did here. The gospel and Abraham's faith in it shaped his handling of this potentially very dangerous conflict. So what does that look like? Well, when you trust God and your trust in God is growing, it helps you stop being a withdrawer in conflicts, for one. How's that work? Listen, when we believe that God is with us, and that he's proven that he's with us in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for our sins, when we can believe that, really, in our day-to-day, our fear of man, our fear of what other people think, our fear of potentially damaging relationships that are meaningful to us, begins over time to diminish. How does that happen? It happens because, because we're trusting in the gospel, we aren't overly reliant on what another person thinks of us or having other people like us, right? We're reliant on God's delight in us in the gospel. And that enables us, rather than withdrawing, to speak up for ourselves, to deal with sin and foolishness in direct and wise ways, and to trust God instead of dreading the consequences of potential conflict. Make sense? So as you more and more embed your life in the truth of the gospel, as you can trust that God is for you, that he delights in you, that your identity is secure in him and in him alone, you can face those situations that might just make you crumble on the inside over time. The gospel also helps you if you are an attacker in conflict. Trust in God helps you move past that sort of mindset. So when we are attacking in conflict, It's very often because we are so insecure that we're unable to hear any negative feedback about ourselves uh, or criticism about ourselves. And so we get really defensive and edgy when there's conflict in a relationship. And if conflict does come and we get criticized, we will retaliate with a vengeance, right? But, But when we can trust in God's love, When our trust that God is with us is increasing, then we can begin to change from being an attacker to being someone that handles conflict with wisdom. We can be humbled enough when we understand the gospel to see ourselves as we really are. Remember, the gospel tells you that you are loved in Jesus, but also that you are broken and needy and sinful. It gives you both a right view of God and a right view of yourself. And so as you're increasing in your knowledge and in your trust and in your steadfastness in the truth of the gospel, you're able to really see perhaps what you contribute to conflicting situations. You're able to see some of your shortcomings without becoming overly defensive or edgy or attacking with a vengeance. You're able to receive criticism in a way that's much healthier and not be devastated by it. Because you know that God knows you even better than the person criticizing you. 
If anyone has a right to criticize you, it's God. He knows you fully, and yet he still loves you and pardons all of your sins in Jesus. So if we can stand before God as we really are and know that he forgives us, then we can handle the criticism of others, even if it's not that well-intentioned, by the way. And so as you more and more increase in your trust in God, as your faith in the gospel more and more grows, you are, over time, going to be able more and more to perhaps cease the withdrawing tendencies you have or cease the attacking tendencies you have and do what Abraham does here, handle conflict directly and with wisdom. So here we see in Abraham a maturation. Here we see a holy confidence developing. We see Abraham trusting God enough to boldly speak with Abimelech in a potentially dangerous situation, right? We see Abimelech noticing the blessing of God upon Abraham as Abraham is walking the life of faith. And again, let's wrap up with this idea. Where does this come from? The reason that Abraham manifests and demonstrates this holy confidence is because he is learning to trust God. And we see that even at the very end of the story in verse 33, he plants this tamarisk tree and worships there. He calls upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. As Abraham's trust that God is with him increases, his holy confidence in life increases. As Abraham grows in his understanding of God's commitment to him in the gospel, he can more and more grow in his handling precarious and tenuous circumstances and relationships. So his confidence, his honesty, and his faithfulness in life flow out of his trust in God's faithfulness to him. Can you trust God? Is your total relationship with God one on which you can build a bulwark of trust against the attacks of adversity that are surely going to come? Only as you know God as he offers himself to you in the gospel of Jesus can you learn over time to trust him more and to grow in holy confidence yourself. God is with us. He is faithful and steadfast even when we fall short. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. He is at our right hand as a strong tower from the moment we rise to the moment we go to bed and throughout the night every day until we die and go to be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. If you can rest in that truth that your failures and past do not jeopardize your standing with God because Jesus has forgiven you. If you can rest in that truth, you can adapt and learn and grow in this holy confidence over time. May it be the case with us that we might be a blessing to the world. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your love for us. Thank you that through the story of Abraham, you teach us both about what you were really like and about ourselves. And God, as we reflect this morning on what we see in Abraham's life over time, he never achieved perfection or anything close to it, God, but he does develop a life of faithfulness, a life of trust. And we see that he does that, and as he does that, people notice and want to be around him and see him as a blessing. And so, God, we see him as a model of our own Christian experience in so many ways and long to grow in our own faith and our own trust. And yet we struggle, God. We struggle with confidence. We struggle with conflict. We struggle to be wise and bold and humble. God, we need your help. So will you please come and help us? Will you work through your word, Holy Spirit, and enable us to see Jesus 
the author and perfecter of our faith, to rest and rely in him. And therefore, as a result of that, to live a life of confidence, of uh, good and gracious humility, yet also uh, boldness and fervor and faithfulness. God, we need your help for that. And so we ask that you would grant us a piece of that even this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.